Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 8, 9, and 10. Uh, it'll be helpful for you this morning if you remember where we left off last week. <clears throat> last week we saw that the Lord has given uh, his people a way, sinful though they are, to meet with him in his holiness. The way that the Lord has promised to do this is through the sacrificial system which takes place in the tabernacle. We read in Exodus 29 where God says this, For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And then when this happens, it says, There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with you, the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So last week we learned that the five main sacrifices are in the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. And these sacrifices were a really big deal. You can see how big of a deal they are when you look at the extreme detail given to exactly how these sacrifices are to be offered up to the Lord. Now, the next big chunk in Leviticus, the chunk that we're going to be in this morning, has to deal with the priests. Uh, the priests are the ones who are responsible for overseeing the sacrifices, for leading the Israelites and worshiping the Lord through the sacrificial system. The importance of their job cannot be overstated. They are leading God's people in right worship. It's the most important job. And you can see how important it is when you look at some of the detail for this ordination that they're going to go through in this morning's text. Uh, that's what all of chapter 8 is about. We see the consecration of Aaron and his sons for the work of the priesthood. So look with me to chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. So here we see God's basically saying, all right, we got the sacrificial system set up. Now we got to get the priests installed. So grab all your supplies, grab all the people, and meet me at the front door of the tabernacle. Uh, before moving on, I just want to highlight the fact that this, this uh, setting apart of the priests for their work, it's not done by men wearing masks, you know, by torchlight in a very cloak and dagger, secret society kind of way. It's something that's happening out in the open, and God wants his people to be there to witness who their leaders are and how they're being installed. Okay. Uh, then the text walks through the seven stages of the ordination ceremony. And you can see each one of these stages is clearly marked off with a saying. The phrase is, as the Lord commanded. For the note takers... It's in verse 4, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17, verse 21, verse 29, and verse 36. If you didn't get all that, too bad. Okay. In verses 5 through 7, 
we see a description of the adorning of the priestly garb. We're not going to hang out and talk all about that. If you want to read more about that, you can go and look at it in Exodus 28. But you should know that their garb is their clothing. It's all very symbolic. Uh, Even what they're not wearing is symbolic, which you'll notice when you go back and read through this, uh, which you should, is that the priests aren't wearing any shoes. That's because it's expected that when they're serving in the tabernacle, they're in the presence of God and they're standing on holy ground. Good little Bible study if you want to go back and dig in in your devotionals. Then in verses 10 through 13, you see Moses anointing the future priests as well as the tools of their trade for their work in the tabernacle. Then in verses 14 through 29, we see three separate offerings being made on behalf of the priests. Now some of the details in these verses leave us scratching our heads, just like a lot of stuff on Leviticus. It doesn't make immediate sense to us. So like, look at verse 23. It says, And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And we read that and we're like, okay, what is going on? Why blood on the earlobe and on the thumb and on the, on the big toe? Well, this is actually an example of something called a merism. You guys know what I'm talking about. But for those of you who don't know about a merism, it's often used in rhetoric uh, as like a form of speech. So like if I say, oh man, I lost my keys, I can't find them. I looked high and low for them, right? I'm, I'm talking about two extremes that communicate everything in between. So I'm saying, you know, I, by saying I looked high and low, really what I'm saying is I looked everywhere for my keys. Well, the same thing is true here, but it's not a figure of speech. It's, it's pictorially represented. Uh, the blood is put on the earlobe and on the thumb and on the big toe to communicate the consecration of the entire body. Could they have just dumped the blood over their head like from Carrie? Yeah, they could have done that. But I'm sure that the priests appreciate just the dab on the toe and the thumb and the earlobe. Okay. Um, then in verses 31 through 36, we have the prescribed Levitical cookout. That's part of the ordination ceremony. It's, it's boiled meat and bread. Not exactly a crawfish cookout or low country boil, uh, but... I don't think the point here is to see who can make the best goat brisket. The point is uh, a holy meal before the Lord. And then in verse 32, the Lord tells the priests that they have to hang out in the sanctuary for seven days. This ordination process takes seven days. Uh, not, not quick. They have to spend a lot of time in the tabernacle, which is fine because I hear the nightlife at the foot of Mount Sinai is basically non-existent. So then we come to chapter 9. Okay, we got, to, we got chapter 8 taken care of. We come to chapter 9. Uh, it begins the day after the final day of the ordination. So look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 9. It says, On the eighth day Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering, and take a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. That takes us back to the promise from Exodus 28 and 32, right? You you offer these sacrifices rightly before the Lord, and the promise is, is that you will be able to dwell in God's presence. God is going to communicate with you. And so 
after the first day of ordination, we see that there's no hanging around, you know? It's not like, okay, you've been ordained, you had to spend seven days in the tabernacle, now go hang out, take a week off, come back. No, it's right into the very first worship service. Now, uh, if, you, if you're reading chapter 9 the way that most people prior to like the mass production of devotional books would have read Leviticus chapter 9, you would have probably read chapters 1 through 7, and then 8, and then 9. And, and there would have been a particular effect of reading it that way because you would have read in chapters 1 through 7 exactly how specific all these sacrifices had to be uh, made. And then you would have read in, in verse 8 the, the specific ways that this ordination had to be carried out because it was such a big deal that the priests were rightly qualified uh, and set apart to do this work. And then you would have come to chapter 9 and you would have seen the priests offering up their sacrifices for this first service and you would have been like, we're doing it. We're really doing it. These guys that God has chosen and called and set apart for this purpose, purpose and given very particular instructions on how to approach God and lead God's people in approaching God, they're doing it all. They're doing it exactly right. Praise God. You can see at the end of verse 4 uh, that promise that the Lord will meet with his people. But then again in verse 6 you see, And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And so as an Israelite, you're excited because as you're, as you're seeing this worship service being carried out, these sacrifices being offered up properly, you're like, okay, God's going to meet with us. This is a huge deal. And then sure enough, you look at verses 22 through 24 of chapter 9. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. <coughs> A job well done. Promise has been fulfilled. It's a good day at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then we come to chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, your version might say strange fire, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We really need to feel the flow of what's happening in the book of Leviticus in order to really appreciate what's happening here. Chapters 1 through 7 lay out with great specificity how these sacrifices are supposed to be offered up before the Lord so that he will keep good on his promise to meet with him. And then chapter 8 emphasizes all these commands for the priestly ordination. And if you're reading chapter 8, you just notice over and over again, seven times, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Sean, are you going to do all seven? That's four. As the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. And see, even just now, you're like, okay, we get it, Sean. Like, uh, you didn't have to do all seven. But that's, that's even how it would feel as you're reading it. You're just like, again and again. And then you come to chapter nine, and you see five more times, as the Lord commanded. And then you come to chapter 10, and you see Nadab and Abihu. 
And it says that they offered up this strange, unauthorized fire as the Lord had not commanded. This reminds me of Genesis 1, where the Lord, as he's creating the, the universe, the galaxies, after every act of creation, he steps back and, he, and the text says, and he saw that it was good. 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 And then after five of those, he creates man, but he sees that man is alone. And so he steps back and he says, and it is not good. And if you're reading Genesis through, when you come to the not good, that not should jump right up at your face, right off of the page. Because it's, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then the record skips. It's not good. Same thing here. As the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, record skip, as the Lord had not commanded. So let's try to wrap our minds around what, what's happening here. First of all, who are Nadab and Abihu? Well, they were the two eldest sons of Aaron. Uh, we know from Exodus chapter 24 that they must have been pretty important because they were part of the party that went up the side of the mountain uh, to go, you know, uh, have this feast, this, this uh, celebration meal with the Lord on Mount Sinai. So it was Moses, Aaron, 70 elders, and then the text specifically names Nadab and Abihu, the two eldest sons of Aaron. So they must have been kind of a big deal, you know? Uh, and then just a few four, short verses ago, we saw that they were ordained as priests. So that's who they are. Now let's address the nature of their offense. We know that generally speaking, their offense is that they did something that was not commanded by the Lord. They offered up strange fire. But what is this strange fire? What is this unauthorized thing that they did? Well, we know that part of the daily service in the temple uh, for the priest was to take incense and to pour it over hot coals that were inside of a censer. And when the incense would hit the hot coals, it would evaporate and then the whole tent would smell good, okay? And when I say tent, don't think like, you know, going camping, pump, pup tent. Don't even think like, uh, like a tent for you and your family. Think about a tent that's about half the size of a football field, okay? And their job is to put the incense in the censer and to put off the aroma that would fill the entire tabernacle, and we know from verse 1 that it had something to do with that. But what exactly did they do wrong? Did they offer the incense at the wrong time of day? It was only supposed to be offered at certain times. Uh, did they, you know, incense is a composite of all these different materials. When you put it all together and it burns, it smells a particular way. And the priests actually had to make the incense. Did they, was it like the wrong blend of herbs and spices, you know? Uh, the coals for the burning of the incense, they were supposed to be taken directly off the altar. Maybe something went wrong there and they took coals off of a different fire instead of coals directly off the altar. We just don't know. The text doesn't say. But what we do know is that they knew. If anybody knew, they knew. They had been clearly communicated to by God through Moses exactly how they were supposed to conduct themselves, exactly how... They were supposed to lead God's people in worship, and they disregarded and disobeyed. Now, what we also may wonder, there it is, we also may wonder what it means that the fire came out. I haven't been drinking, I promise. We also may wonder what it means that the fire came out and consumed them. Uh, our modern sensibilities tend to lead us to want like a naturalistic explanation of that, right? Like people who 
like, you know, try to talk about wind patterns that might have separated the seas in Exodus for the crossing of the Red Sea, or uh, scientists who want to say that there was a salinity thing that could have happened in the Jordan that allowed an axe head to float in the water. We say, like, oh, maybe it was a backdraft of some sort, and the fire came out and consumed them. And we say, oh, God's sovereign. He could be sovereign over a backdraft, you know. And that's true. And maybe it was a backdraft. But it probably wasn't. Uh, If you... It seems wrong to try to remove the miraculous nature of this fire, especially when you look at the last chapter, right? If you remember, look at 924. It says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings. So in the last chapter, fire comes out and consumes the offerings. So are we to believe that, that there's two backdrafts, both of them just perfectly timed, one that comes out and consumes an offering right when the priests offer it, and another backdraft that comes? No, that, that seems unlikely. Uh, moreover, in chapter 9, you see that when the people see this fire come out and consume the offerings, that they fall down on their faces and they shout. Okay? That's because this is not normal to them, just like it's not normal to us. It's not like back then the Lord just kind of always did these sorts of things. Remember, signs and wonders, if you were here on Wednesday night, you heard the spiel then, but signs and wonders come in clumps and clusters in the Bible. And they usually only come when God is doing something very significant, very big in salvation history. And that's exactly what we have happening in this text. Right? This, this, uh, this system that God has put in place for his people to approach him, even though they're sinful and he's holy. It's all coming together. And so the Lord appears either to show his approval or to show his wrath in very obvious and demonstrable ways. He's just trying to drive home a point. And the point that God is trying to drive home in these chapters, particularly in chapter 10, is that a holy God will not be approached in a casual manner. A holy God will not be approached in cavalier fashion. A holy God will not allow us to approach him on our terms. He will dictate how we approach him because he is holy and we are sinful. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what title you may have or what platform you may occupy or who your friends might be in high places. You may not approach the Lord in your own way. We don't know why these sons of Aaron felt comfortable approaching the Lord in their own way, offering up worship according to their own wisdom. Maybe it's because they thought they were really important people and they could just do whatever they wanted to do. I mean, these are Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest. I can imagine these two sons saying, do you know who my dad is? How dare you? I got to go up on the mountain with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders. Do you know how important I am? I'm a big deal. Think the Lord's going to burn up a man wearing a seven thousand dollar suit? No way. <laughs> you see this kind of attitude today in many word of faith churches, which are essentially just cults masquerading as Christianity. It's not uncommon in these circles for pastors to try to fleece their flocks, taking advantage of them emotionally, financially, often sexually. And when these sins come to light, these pastors are almost never removed from office. Why? 
Well, because there's a theology in these circles uh, of touch not the Lord's anointed. This is a misinterpretation of an Old Testament text, but it's basically this idea that if God has anointed a man and set him apart for his special service, then he doesn't really have to deal with the consequences of his sin because he's chosen by God and set apart. But what we learn in this morning's text is that that's actually exactly false, right? It's because someone is anointed and set apart by God that they're held to a higher standard of holiness. That's the reason why we have character qualifications for elders. That's the reason why we don't just ask any man in the church to be an elder. He may be a Christian. He may inherit the kingdom of God. He certainly will inherit the kingdom of God, and God loves him. But there are certain character requirements in order to serve the Lord in the church because God holds us to a higher standard. Maybe Nadab and Abihu were actually pretty level-headed until their ordination ceremony. You guys ever known somebody like that who seemed like really down to earth until they got just a little bit of power, just a little bit of authority, just a tiny bit of a platform, the smallest title, you know, assistant to the regional manager, and all of a sudden, they're king of the world. You know, they went from, hey, I'm just like one of you guys to I'm in charge here. I think this is one of the reasons why Paul says that an elder must not be a recent convert. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, he says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the temptation of the devil. This language is the language of pride. And that's what can happen when we get just a little bit of something that we're not really prepared for. Now, the text doesn't explicitly say that the issue here with Nadab and Abihu was pride. But friends, what else could it be? What else could lead a man who has been clearly told this is how you have to approach God? What else could lead that man to say, I don't think I have to. I can approach God how I want to approach God. I can worship God how I want to worship God. I'm going to do what I think is best and not what God has specifically said is best. You see this kind of pride manifest itself in so many different ways in the life of the church. Uh, it's not unique to our modern church, but I think you see it uh, more in our modern church. And I just want to walk through a couple of examples of this kind of spiritual pride that leads men and women in the life of churches uh, to say, like, yeah, I'm going to do it my way rather than your way, God. So example number one. And this is going to kind of move in order from, like, least controversial to, like, you're probably going to fidget in your seats. So number one, I'm going to pick on some of my Baptist brethren of whom I am the foremost, uh, that receive people who were baptized as infants into church membership. Now, if you were here and you were baptized as an infant, I'm not trying to pick on you, but if you get picked on, I'm glad you're here. Okay, so uh, infant baptism just isn't baptism. The Bible is clear that baptism requires repentance and faith. So it's not uncommon. Now, I'm not talking about Presbyterians. I know they would disagree with me on that, and so would Methodists and a bunch of other people. That's fine. But I'm talking about people who hold to what we hold to in this church, which is uh, uh, this understanding of baptism. And yet, it's, it's so common for people in Baptist churches to receive members into their membership uh, who were baptized as infants. And when I talk to brothers about this, they usually, they usually say, Sean, well, how can you withhold baptism from them? Excuse me, how can you withhold membership from them? Uh, don't you believe that they're a Christian? And I say, I do believe that they're a Christian, but I don't have the authority to say that something is something that it's not. If Jesus says that baptism is this, 
then I don't have the authority from God to say that baptism is not that, regardless of the situation. So, another example. This is going to be the one where you fidget in your seats a little bit, okay? And you shouldn't. I think we all agree on this. We all believe the same things on this. Maybe not, but I think so. Uh, but usually when I say stuff like this and it kind of it makes the air a little thick, we get a little uncomfortable and nervous, it's not because we don't believe the same things. It's because we know that what, what Christians believe can seem really offensive to the world. It can be, uh, it can even just be kind of embarrassing. You know, you would think, hey, if my friends or my cousins or my coworkers or whatever were here with me today and they heard you say that, it would be uncomfortable. And so you kind of feel the weight of that. But I just want to say it as clearly and as charitably as possible. Uh, brothers and sisters, the office of elder in the church is reserved for men and men only. God has designed the church according to his perfect wisdom for our good and for his glory. And what that means is that he's designed for elders to be men and not women. Now, this position is seen as laughable by many in our modern church. I mean, in the church, not just the world, right? Which, of course, why, why would there ever be anything that a man does that a woman doesn't do? Okay, so in the world, obviously, it's laughable. But by many Christians, it seem as a, it's seen as a bigoted, backwards remnant of our dark patriarchal past. But friends, I think it's nothing more than the spiritual pride that we see here with Nadab and Abihu that would lead us to call what God has said is good, what God has ordained to be right, what God has clearly commanded, to call that unenlightened, backwards, bigoted. God knew what he was doing when he created men and women. And he created them in equal value, dignity, and worth. And he created them to work together in a complementary fashion for our good and for his glory. And he knew what he was doing when he put men in positions of leadership in the home and in the church. When we disregard the clear commands of Scripture in our churches by appointing women to be pastors, or, base, or even if not giving them the title, asking them to do the things that pastors are called to do, we are rejecting God's wisdom in the church, and we are offering him strange fire. But Sean, what about unqualified men who are pastors but shouldn't be? Yeah, amen, I'm with you, I'm tracking. Yes, they should not be. There are very high standards to be an elder. And what that means is it doesn't just rule out women, it rules out a ton of men. And unfortunately, the church is full of men who should not be elders, who are elders. And a lot of people are hurt by that. And it is also strange fire. But it does seem like there's a specific kind of pride in appointing female pastors because it takes something that's so clear from Scripture and inverts it. So, now, you may be wondering, Sean, okay, I think I agree with you. Doctrinally, that makes sense. We're all on the same page. But why are you using that as an example? Right? Like, are you trying to pick a fight this morning? Are you trying to, like, be a rabble-rouser? Are you trying to just say difficult things from the pulpit? Well, first of all, you should know that I don't revel in this kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not like just dying to bring up homosexuality and the doctrine of eternal punishment so that we can all just sit here uncomfortable, okay? That's, that's not why I'm doing this. There are two reasons why I bring this up as an example. One is because of how ubiquitous it is or how, how it's just everywhere. It's becoming common. 150 years ago in God's church, the, the understanding of certain things like who should be an elder and who shouldn't were so plain, so obvious, so clear that there just wasn't any debate about it. 
And now you have many churches that are, uh, I think, on our team. We're on their team. We're gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches, and we advocate for all the same things, and we're on the same mission, uh, but who are bending the knee on this, and I don't understand why. Uh, and I, I'm concerned by it, and I think we should be too. Uh, the second issue is that it actually hits closer to home than you may realize. There's a lot of stuff as a pastor that like, I feel and encounter that you guys just don't ever know about, and that's probably for the best because you'd go half as crazy as I am. But let me just give you an example, just one example of how often this sort of thing comes up. This is from an email that I got from a prospective visitor to our church. Hi there. Starting off good. All right. And I'm reading that in a very positive light. Hi there, okay? Uh, I will be in Alabama, and I was considering visiting your church. All right. We might get up to 40 people. Here we go. I'm excited. I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. However, I can't quite tell what role women have in your church. Could you elaborate? E.g., if all women, that's for example, uh, if all women can do is teach Sunday school, or if they can't be ushers, we don't even have ushers, uh, a.k.a. just be silent, etc., then I wouldn't be interested in attending. This potential visitor says, listen, my decision to come to your church or not come to your church is based off of what you believe about women in the life of the church. So I bring this up as an example because it's actually very relevant. And you notice the language that this person uses, a.k.a. if they can just be silent. Now you notice from our sister Susanna reading scripture this morning, uh, we, when Paul says that women should remain silent in the church, we don't understand that to mean that they can't like, say a word. We understand him to be talking about authoritative teaching in the church. Regardless of what she means, she's taking the actual words of scripture and saying, if you do that, then I don't want to come. So I'm using this as an example, brothers and sisters, because it's very relevant to the life of our church. Now, I want to pause here. I want to talk to my elders for a minute. But you should still pay attention. Just like when I preached to the kids that one Sunday, you know, you can still learn a lot. Um, Look at verse 11, chapter 10. Talking about the priests, it says, And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Here, the, the text says that the responsibility of the priests was to teach the people of Israel the word of God. So my fellow elders, that's our responsibility today. That's what God has called us to do. And by the way, not just elders, but potential future elders. So, you know, you, those of you guys who are in the elders cohort, I'm talking to you. If you become an elder in the church one day, young men, Micah, Cohen, Van, you know, whoever else, Asher, Andrew, everybody, who, young men, if you want to be elders in the church, you should know that the role of the elder is to lead God's people in right worship. And it's a very serious thing. For what we see from this text is that it's a deadly serious thing. That's why the book of James says that not everyone should aspire to be a teacher because we will be held to a stricter standard. Now, it's super easy for me to stand up here and for us to point out like, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world or to talk about the, you know, the liberalistic churches that are very obviously contravening the commands of Scripture by having female pastors. But I want us to stop as leaders and future leaders in this church, and I want us to look at ourselves this morning and remember that we have a holy responsibility before the Lord and that we cannot trifle with this stewardship, this authority, this platform that we've been given. And if we do, like Nadab and Abihu, we will pay the price. I think this is why verse 9 is so important. Look there. You start in verse 8. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine 
or a strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. I don't think he's saying if you go in there with alcohol in your system, you're going to die. I think he's saying if you drink strong drink and you go in there, you're probably going to do something that you're not supposed to do, and that will lead to your destruction. Right? You guys tracking with me? Were Nadab and Abihu drunk when they went in there? I don't know. The text doesn't say, but I think it's pretty significant that right after this happens, there is a clear prohibition against these priests drinking alcohol because it can cloud their vision. It could lead to them messing up in a big way that really matters. Brothers and sisters, you should know that uh, I feel perfect liberty in Christ to drink alcohol. I don't think that's a sin at all. In many ways, uh, wine and stuff can be good gifts as long as there's no drunkenness. Nevertheless, I've basically chosen the position of being a functional teetotaler in my life. And the reason why is because of texts like this. Uh, I don't want to let something cloud my vision. I don't want something to lead me down a path that could, that could lead me to make one mistake that could change the rest of my life forever, forever, especially considering the importance of the work that God has called me to as your pastor. Now, I'm not uh, giving uh, any, anyone in this church, but particularly elders or future elders in this church, I'm not giving you a rule. I'm not saying you, you must not drink alcohol. Uh, but I am telling you to heed the words of wisdom and to recognize that there is, uh, well, just wisdom in setting up rules for your own life to make sure that you don't end up like Nadab and Abihu, making a decision that you will regret forever. And I also want to remind you that this kind of error it's not beyond you in the ministry, right? Uh, I know it's cliche to say, but you know, if you look at verse uh, 4, you see the names of uh, Mishael. Am I saying that right? I hope so. If you want somebody who can pronounce names right, you get a seminary trained pastor. Amen. Mishael and Elzaphan. Mishael, that just sounds like a Russian name. Okay. And Elzaphan. These are the two sons of Aaron that didn't, that didn't mess up. They're the ones who have to kind of clean everything up. When we read a story like this, it's so easy for us to put ourselves in their shoes. We're the ones who have to pick up the pieces when the other guys mess up and they sin. But it's cliche for a reason. You need to see yourself as Nadab and Abihu. We need to recognize that it's perfectly possible for us to fail in this way. Now, Let's think about some application from this text for the rest of our congregation. I've spent a lot of time warning the elders against strange fire. But uh, let's, let's, we have to remember that uh, the New Testament teaches the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. So this text is specifically about the priests and how the priests messed up. And so you may be thinking, well, Sean, what does it have to do with me? I am not a priest in Old Testament Israel. Well, the Bible actually says that you are a priest in a certain sense. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It says, You, believers, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, the priests would lead God's people in worship and they would offer physical sacrifices. In the New Testament, all believers are priests because we're in Christ, the high priest. And the kind of sacrifices we offer are no longer animals, but spiritual sacrifices. So there's a sense in which what's happening here with the priests applies to every single one of us in this room that is a believer. 
So, let me give you an example of how this text can apply to us in our everyday lives. I got this example from Spencer Miller, who has disappeared. Bathroom, maybe? Yeah, he's, I'm sure he's going to love to find out that we're talking about him while he's in the bathroom. This is an example that he shared with me via email this week. The principle here in the text is that we must worship God according to his clear commands. And yet, it is not uncommon at all in our day for many professing Christians to think that they can worship God according to what they feel is right, rather than what God has clearly commanded in his word. And then he goes on to give the obvious examples of Christians who believe that they can worship God just as well by taking a hike in the woods or spending time with their families over brunch on a Sunday morning, rather than doing what God's word clearly commands, which is to gather with the saints, to sing, to pray, to listen to God's word read and preached, to love one another, serve one another, celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, to grieve one another, bear one another's burdens, to care for the poor, etc., all together in physical proximity. But I don't think that the application for us as individual Christians should even stop there. Look at verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So this is, this is Moses going to Aaron, right? Knowing Aaron just lost his two sons. It's a very big deal. He knows Aaron is probably upset. And he basically goes and he says, Listen, God has done this. Because what they did did not treat God like he's holy. And it robbed him of glory. And at this, Aaron held his peace because he knew that it was true. So the heart of this offense is obviously deeper than incense and hot coals. The incense and the hot coals is just an expression, an outward expression of an inward reality that does not view God as holy. Now, what does that mean for your life then? If that's the offense here, then I think that means that we're all guilty of the same sin that Nadab and Abihu committed. We all fail to treat God as holy like he truly is. We have to remember that God's word is an all-sufficient guide for every area of our lives. Our entire lives are one big act of worship. And God has given us his word, which clearly teaches us how we are to worship God with everything that he's given us, every place that he's put us. For 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of God's word? Yes, all of God's word. Even the book of Leviticus? Even the book of Leviticus. So there are so many different ways we can fail to make God's name look glorious in our lives. Let me give you another example from a member of our church. He says, what about when people, myself included, find ways to excuse following God's clear command for our lives? For example, and then he uh, parenthetically marks, this is not me, okay? When a couple is engaged and they know that they're going to be married, so they go ahead and partake of the marital fruit before the wedding. You could try to excuse this by saying that we're going to be married soon anyway, so there's no big deal with getting a head start. A wedding is just a ceremony. Well, as many excuses as you may have, it's still against God's commands. And your motivation is all wrong as well. Now, we can do, I'm not just trying to pick on people who got together before they walked down the aisle. This kind of thing can manifest itself in a thousand different ways. So trying to find an excuse to fudge on our taxes to get a bigger refund. Telling a lie. Finding a way to be nasty towards a spouse even though we shouldn't be acting that way. Showing partiality to the rich or to the poor. 
failing to deal justly in our business transactions. We could just go on and on and on. The fact of the matter is that we all, in every area of our lives, fail to consistently act in a way that honors God for as holy as he truly is. We just shouldn't try to hide that. You know, that's how you end up with a church full of self-righteous Pharisees. We have to be honest with one another. We have to say, yes, we're, I'm Nadab, I'm Abihu, I do these sorts of things. With my finances, I don't make God's name holy. With my body, I fail to honor God as I should. In my relationships, I am guilty. I mean, if there's anywhere we can be honest with ourselves about our sin, it should be right here in the church because we know that we have a loving and gracious Savior who loves us despite the fact that we don't ever worship God with the full reverence and sincerity that we should. And yet he loves us. The beautiful, beautiful line from the book of Ephesians says, even when we were dead in our sins, he loved us. So let's just be honest about it. And that's the first step to actually trying to fix it and moving towards holiness. We also have to remember that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? One of the sweet promises of the gospel is that we don't have to fight this sin battle on our own. We don't have to try to figure out how to worship God consistently according to his commands on our own. The Spirit of God indwells us and teaches us how we are to worship God, primarily by pointing us back to the Word of God. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that this forgiveness comes to us at a very great cost. The gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling us comes to us at a very great cost. Jesus, our perfect high priest who never sinned, never offered up false worship to the Father, he was consumed by the fire of God's wrath when it should have been us. It should have been you. It should have been me. We just casually, flippantly, cavalierly, pridefully approach God in any way that we think is best. And because of that, we deserve death hell. We should be burned up. But we won't be. Because Jesus was consumed in our place. Now, before closing the sermon, I want to show you one more thing about the priests. Uh, Do you know, I wonder, how the Levites actually came to be the priests? I mean, it wasn't always so. There's a specific reason why the tribe from Levi became the priestly tribe. I mean, let me tell you about it. It's all the way back in Exodus 32. You don't have to flip there, but you can go back and read the story later. In Exodus 32, we find Moses going to the top of the mountain to meet with the Lord. and uh, He takes a little while coming down. You know how it is up there chatting with God. And he takes a little bit longer to come down. And obviously, because he's delayed a little bit, everyone gets together and they build a golden calf and they start saying, this is the God who saved us, right? That makes perfect sense. And so after Moses finds out about it, he pleads with the Lord, please don't destroy the people. Please don't, Lord. It's going to make your name look terrible among the nations. Everyone's going to say, ah, you're not the God who can save a people. And so the Lord relents and he says, okay, I'm not going to punish. uh, I'm not going to destroy these people. So Moses comes down the mountain and this happens. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each one of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you 
kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. It was a bloody day. The text continues. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men fell from the people. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The Levites were chosen to become the priests of Israel because they showed themselves to be zealous for the holiness of God. They were surrounded by people who were treating God as if he wasn't holy. They were robbing God of glory. Moses comes down and he says, this cannot stand amongst God's holy people. So come to me, anyone who's zealous for holiness. And the Levites rose up. So I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, knowing that you are all priests in God's house now, are you zealous for God's holy name? Are you zealous for holiness? These men lost a great deal for the sake of holiness. They cut down their sons, their brothers, their neighbors. Aaron lost his two eldest sons, his boys. This reminds us of the words of Jesus in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's real easy to say, holy, 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 I want holiness. But what about when God calls you to draw a sword and put to death anything in your midst that may be keeping you from that holiness? It could be your career. It could be a friend. It could be that addiction that you love and cherish so much. It could be a big chunk of your savings. It could be your reputation, a spouse, a family member, your pride, or even your life. So I just want to close by asking you, are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus who not only demands our holiness, but will guarantee that we actually do become holy in him? Or will you be like the rich young ruler who encountered Jesus and saw the great demands and walked away brokenhearted because he knew that he didn't want to count the cost? Let's pray. Father, you have fed us this morning. All of your word is breathed out for our good. We thank you for the book of Leviticus. We pray that as we have given ear to your clear commands from Scripture, that you will produce in us the fruit of righteousness and the passions of holiness. Help us not to be striving after holiness like Pharisees, but rather to strive after holiness and purity of heart and mind. For the love of your name and for the love of our neighbor. Amen.